Okay, Jude says I can introduce myself. I, I've been coming to Borderlands for a long time, about 20 years. So, um, anyway, today we have two things on the agenda. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from my new book, Journals, and then we can do a little Q&A on that, and then uh, we could walk around, and these are all my paintings here, and I, I could say a little about the paintings, give you a little bit of an art tour. These two back here, these are, these are not my best. <laughs> That's why. The pig, uh, I don't really know how I painted that. I just know I really love pigs. So. And then I had the, the threatening claw of the eagle. So This could be viewed as the IRS and the citizen, I suppose. But uh, anyway, let's do a little bit of the journals. Now, this is something... Um, I sort of always had, had this idea it would be cool to write my journals. And uh, around, oh, I guess around 1990, I started using a computer a lot of the time, a laptop. And uh, before that, I, I would sometimes write things down or type them. But once I had the laptop, I could sort of keep a, an ongoing document with, uh, you know, an electronic, a Word document. And so I, I basically accumulated 25 years' worth of this, this stuff. And uh, I was always kind of having in the back of my mind that someday I would publish it. Uh, but getting it from being just, you know, stuff that I wrote down to being stuff that I would feel comfortable putting in a book, I had to, uh, I had to go through it. I went through it about four times, tightening up the entries so each entry has a little bit of a kind of an arc story feel to it. And uh, some of the passages have to do with, well, there's different things. I'll do travel writing, or sometimes I do a thing I call sketching, where I just uh, write down what I'm looking at, describe it. Or then uh, when I'm depressed, you know, I can write about how unhappy I am and how I'll never write again and I have no talent and everybody's against me. And... You write a page or two like that, and then you start feeling better. You know, it's like you, you, you get it out. So there's something like that. And uh, also ideas for science fiction stories. And just stuff about the business of being a writer. It turns out to be a writer for a long time, it's, uh, it takes real... You have to keep pushing at it. You have to push very hard. I mean... It's like some people win a lottery ticket. Some people, you know, get a huge bestseller, you know, very early in their career, and then they're sort of set. But for most writers, it's more like uh, you're just pushing your whole life. You know, you have to keep keep at it, keep it in print, find people to publish it, try to get reviewed, try to get an idea. And uh, it's a career. And ironically, people who become writers are usually not the people who are super good at business or at public relations you know, or schmoozing. So it's, uh, it's sort of hard to, to do all that stuff. And I'm not particularly good at it. But uh, I push it. I do what I can. Anyway, so um, I'll just read you a few passages from here. Here's one that is sort of amusing. Uh, this is from 1992. And at that time, I was working on a novel called The Hacker and the Ants. And I used to go over to Paul Mavridis' apartment. He lives not very far from here on, uh, on Guerrero, I don't know, around Guerrero and, and 6th, 17th. 
22nd, something like that. And uh, then I would get high with him, and he's a painter, and he'd be painting, and we'd be smoking pot. And then I would read him a chapter of of the book I was working on. So here's an account of this. Went over to the apartment of Paul Mavridis and Hal Robbins this week, got very high. I was clipping. When I get high enough, I have this clipping effect that certain levels of thought or perception awareness just disappear like things clipped off a computer graphic screen, either because they don't fit or because their intensity or saturation is too great. That's where knowing computer science can help you understand your life. You know, you're clipping. So that's, <laughs> now you know. It's like instead of the peak going up like this, it just goes up and then cuts across because <laughs> the neurons just can't do that part, you know. Anyway, I told, I told Paul the story of the hacker and the ants thus far. It seemed really interesting and funny as I told it. As I talked, I had the idea that the ants should have mites living on them like the electron microscope picture of a poor pattern bug's back with a mite latched onto a hair and a mite on the mite. I had another good idea too. Now, what was it? Oh, oh, oh yeah. When I was talking about the meta-meta chore boy house robot that killed the baby, Mavridis wanted to know how it killed the baby. He was blasted too, and he thought I was telling a true story. It was vacuuming, and it ran over the baby, I said. No, I don't believe that. So I thought of a better answer on the spot. Oh, yeah, it was Thanksgiving, and the family went out for a walk, and they left the robot to keep an eye on the baby. The robot was supposed to put the turkey in the oven. (laughs) Only the robot get mixed up, and it put the baby in the oven. With the meat thermometer? Yeah, it stuck the meat thermometer into the baby to get to the body cavity, and the baby died instantly. So there were no warning cries to alert the chore boy. And when the family comes home, the robot is bent over the turkey, crooning a lullaby and trying to put a diaper on it. (laughs) And the horrible truth dawns. So anyway, I was like that until 1996. (laughs) And then I stopped drinking and getting high. And uh, here's a, a sort of entry about this. In recovery for real, Big Sur. I've been working at at it all spring off and on, and I'd say that I'm finally in recovery for real. I feel like just now I got the final piece of the puzzle. It has to do with a feeling that something like God is everywhere and this force can help me. I'm talking about a white light, cosmic, overarching, all-as-one, pantheistic kind of God with the added Philip that this force can hear me and help me. I had my vision on a solitary camping trip in Big Sur. I'll jump right up to the vision part now, and after that, I'll get into writing about the beauties of the hike. The vision happened on my second night of sleeping in my tent in a backcountry Big Sur redwood grove. I woke up in the night around 4 a.m. The half moon was high overhead. I put on my glasses and got up and looked around, deciding I should stay up for a little while, as this was such a rare kind of moment, being alone in the moonlight under the redwoods by the stream. I saw some bare, hanging dead branches, and I thought, spooky, and I started to be scared. But then I pushed that away by expanding my awareness to have a sense of a pantheistic God all around me, and within everything that exists, an attentive God loving me. The whole world is a single living fabric that I'm woven into. Alone in the wilderness, I felt safe, as if I were at home. A simple vision, really. 
I knew it all along. I walked down and sat by the stream, listening to its noises, its splishes and splashes, like musical notes, nearly rhythmic but not quite, chaotic and beautiful. Finally, I was well. I like the thumping. <laughs> Goes with it. Here's a little note about Y2K. December 31st, 1999, midnight. After dinner, Isabel and Mikey rode off on their bicycles, and Sylvia and I walk around San Francisco. We swing through Union Square, but nothing's going on there. Only a couple of hundred people in a clearing behind a zillion police barricades listening to some weak-ass world music. We, we ride a bus down Market Street to be as close to the ferry building as we can get, and we walk the rest of the way. This is where it's at. Thousands of people walking along with us. They're not on the whole violent or weird, just here to see the show. We stop around First Street where the crowd starts to get too thick. Hundreds of police, some with riot helmets and batons, some mounted on motorbikes, motorcycles, and horses. They're very insistent about keeping us out of the street and on the sidewalk, a display of force. Their motorcycles are doing little circle maneuvers, savoring their free space. At midnight, the fireworks start by the ferry building's old tower, big fountains of colored balls and paisley like swirlers, then skyrocket explosions, maybe 10 minutes worth. Looking down the street towards the ferry building and the bay behind it, we can't see all the fireworks, but we can see a lot of them. Green laser lights fan over the crowd now, and the twitching beams sketch images on the buildings, fully operational, the exultant play of the still-functioning computers. Behold, our Lord and Master still liveth. <laughs> Here's one about when I stopped teaching, May 18th, 2004. My last lecture. As soon as I woke up, I was planning my final lecture. I'll do this class today in about two weeks in place of a final exam. My students will demo their semester project programs for me, and then I'll be done. At the outdoor coffee bar under my office building, the baristas are playing a Ramones CD, including I Wanted Everything and Rock and Roll High School. Synchronicity everywhere these days. My favorite band has come to sing me goodbye. Joey's dead. This fall I had a premonition exactly here at this coffee that soon I'd be retiring. I sit for a while in the sun drinking tea and listening to the Ramones penning this note. No rush. The Ramones sing their exquisite, the KKK took my baby away. Life is good. What if I got up and started dancing? All around me students are studying as if there were no music. Leaving my last class, I feel light as a feather. After I retired, I went um, to Micronesia with my big brother, Embry. He's five years older than me. And one day I went out, mostly we were scuba diving, but one day I went out snorkeling and kayaking. Uh, yesterday I went on a kayak tour in the Rock Islands. It was one of the very best days of my life. The guys were three Palauans, Jake, Doug, and Reina. They were wild-ass black natives talking rapid-fire Palauan to each other all day. 
Jake was the very image of an old-style island chief, although later I found out he went to college, started a career as an accountant, and threw that over to be a tour guide. <laughs> Paddling into a lagoon for lunch, I felt I was flying. The water was that clear, with the sandy bottom all white. It was as if my kayak were gliding through empty space, and quiet, quiet, quiet all around. Not a whisper of wind in the trees, only the gentle lapping of the waves, the occasional calls of birds, and of course the sporadic whooping of the cheery Palawan guides. I felt a wave of joy wading around in that lagoon and a profound sense of gratefulness, both to the world for being so beautiful and to fate for letting me reach this spot. Peaceful in Eden, the world as it's truly meant to be. I'm glad I lived long enough to get here. High in the air above one of these sunny backwaters, I see a large, dark bird. It's the size of an eagle, but no, it's a fruit bat, the sun shining through the membranes of its wings. The islands seem like green clouds come to earth, mirroring their fluffy white brethren above. In our last snorkel spot, I saw pale blue and pink soft corals, like branching broccoli on the sandy bottom. Fractals. They were growing in a channel connecting two bays, and the channel runs beneath a low natural bridge arch. Swimming through the arch, I encounter a shoal of perhaps 10,000 tiny tropical fish, like the fish you'd see in someone's home aquarium, zebras and tetras. With my snorkel on, I marvel at their schooling motions. They move in unison like iron filings in a field. Ropes and scarves of density emerge from the parallel computations produced by their individual anxieties. The turbulent water currents compute. The clouds in the sky, the cellular automaton reaction diffusion patterns on the mantles of the giant clams, the Jabotinsky scrolls of the shelf corals, the gnarly roots of plants on the land, everything computes, each moment flowing from the moment before, orchestrated by nature's laws. But wait, what about my thoughts? Can I see those as computations too? Well, why can't they just be fractal broccoli, flocking algorithms, class 4 turbulence, cellular automaton scrolls? I want to ascribe a higher significance to my thoughts, but why make so much of them? Are my thoughts really so vastly different from the life forms all around me in these lagoons? Why not relax and merge? All is one. And if I find it useful to understand the one's workings in terms of a computation, don't think this, this reduces the lagoon to a buzzing, buzzing beige box. The lagoon is not reduced. The lagoon is computing just as it is. Computing is simply a way to describe the dance of natural law. There's another cool moment there. Uh, my brother and I were walking around on an island called Pompeii, at one point, we found an enormous petroglyph rock. It was smooth to the, it was smooth to the feet, a hundred feet long, in the jungle beside an open field, with green interior mountains beyond the field and heartbreakingly beautiful tree crowns against the pale blue sky. The rock is covered with little carved designs, quite old, images of paddles or knives, a woman's vagina or maybe a shield, some bow tie shapes, the outline of a whole woman. To find this rock, we'd asked at a house near it, and a betel nut chewing guy offered to guide us. 
We were glad to have him along for a few bucks. His name was Wiley. He banged one spot on the rock, and it sounded a bit hollow. He said, there is a door in the rock here, and the brothers went inside. What brothers, I ask? Two brothers came from far away. Wiley points toward the other side of the island, beyond the interior mountains, perhaps ten miles away. It's the most distant spot that he knows. From Kiti. They made these carvings, a giant came, and they hid inside the rock. See here, it's a picture of a lock and a key. I told him that Embry and I were brothers, and then a little later I told him we were from Kiti, which got a good laugh out of him. It was fun to think of Embry and me as archetypes from a legend, the brothers from Kiti. In a field nearby, Wiley showed, me a woman, showed us a woman rock which had a crotch and a slit like a vagina, really quite graphic. He touched it for good luck, and I did too, hoping to see my woman soon. There were other boulders in the field, and Wiley said they were people too. He said this was his land, and the land was a storyboard, which is the name of a wooden bas-relief comic strip of one or more frames that Micronesians carved to preserve legends. Wiley's rocky field is a storyboard. I love that, living mythically and in depth. In 2008, I had a a brain hemorrhage. There was a part in my brain that, it was like a birth defect. It had been like a time bomb, and then suddenly this artery burst. And then I had a seizure, and I was out of it for a couple of days. And it took me a while to get it back together. And then, naturally, I started trying to write in my journal. And this one is sort of funny. There was, I, I, I was kind of working on a journal. I was kind of starting a novel. And I was also starting my autobiography. I wasn't entirely sure which one I was writing. July 26, 2008. Again with the cow liver. I'm writing almost at random in these notes. I've heard it said that writers are at their best when they have no idea what they're doing. Write a story mostly from the point of view of a person who's going to die. Say it's Tim Bruno, a saucer abductee, and he's worried about death and viewing it in the hysterical, grim, finale kind of way that mortality is common presented in romantic mass media adventures. And Tim goes down, saving the world from alien domination. In the last chapter, Tim's kind of friend, Danny Alloway, is reflecting about Tim. Then he realizes that it doesn't really matter that Tim is dead any more than it matters when a pine cone falls off a tree. If Tim hadn't saved the world, someone else would have. Maybe even Danny himself. If Danny hadn't have been so busy humping, humping that 120-pound chunk of cow liver that's made up to look like Hollywood star Wiener Wesson. <laughs> I don't know where this came from. (laughs) If Danny hadn't have been so busy humping that 120-pound chunk of cow liver that's made up to look like Wiener Wesson. The cow liver is sitting next to Danny. They're sharing a bottle of hard lemonade. Murr, says the liver. I love you, Wiener, says Danny. (laughs) Could I really put that part about the cow liver and Wiener Wesson into a novel? Maybe. I see another scene where the liver is is hiding under Denny's bed. She whispers to him through the mattress. Only Denny can hear her. (laughs) 
what is Wiener Wesson like? <laughs> I see her as a Native American, or perhaps she's from India. Of course, I realize that the novel that I eventually managed to write might not be about a talking alien cow liver at all. It's just a goof to start with. Even in my adult state, I can still grasp that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I'll read one more little part, and then we'll open it up to some Q&A. And this is in 2012, and this is around the time when uh, I published about 40 books with so-called real publishers. And then I got out to the end of the long tail, you know, and then I'm not on the tail anymore. So now I publish myself. And it was, it was kind of a... Making that transition was psychologically difficult. Um, it was also, as a practical matter, I had to learn a lot of stuff. But um, So this was when I was just sort of starting on this period. I also kept thinking about this idea that there's this thing, it's not actually true, it's more like an urban legend, but there's this idea that the Inuit, when somebody's old and toothless and kind of a drag, then you put them on an ice floe with you know, some food and, and send them out into the water. And uh, that's sort of, you know, like my last meeting with my editor at Tor. It's sort of like, uh, here's a piece of cow liver. Have yourself a time. <laughs> anyway, so May 22nd, 2012, eclipse, transition. There was a cool partial annular eclipse of the sun in the San Francisco Bay Area last week. It was about 6.30 p.m., and the sun was going behind the hill that we live on. So I walked up the street to get a better view. I'd been using the safe method of studying tiny crescents via a pinhole-punched piece of paper, projecting the crescents onto the black back of a book. Wearing shades and walking up our tree-crowned hill, I noticed that the patches of shadow light cast by the trees and bushes were strangely warped as well, with each dapple blob molded into a crescent. I looked up and I saw the eclipsed sun directly with my eyes. And yes, I know you're not supposed to stare at the sun, and I didn't, but I could see it via quick, raking, sidelong glances. The suddenly huge-seeming sun was a strange crescent, just above the horizon, filtered through the scrim of oak trees, archaic and mythical, the horned sun. It felt like a weird sign, a signal from on high. This is a strange time in writing and publishing. It seems like there's hardly any bookstores anymore. The publishers are on the skids. Ebooks are starting to matter, especially to me. Tor won't have me anymore, and my new guys, Nightshade Books, they're on the verge of bankruptcy. Jim and the Flims got no distribution at all, and there won't be a paperback. No offers on the touring, on, uh, touring in boroughs at all. Rejected by the big houses and the small publishers both. I myself believe that Touring in Burroughs is as good a novel as I've ever written. But possibly the gay romance, the Burroughs junkie routines, the beat humor, the cop killing, and my usual bad attitude put off the editors. <laughs> Guys, it's supposed to be funny. I've already mentioned the apocryphal story that in hard times, the Inuit used to set aging tribe members onto ice floes and let them drift out to sea towards the midnight sun. I think about this a lot these days. 
I've been building up my new publishing venture, Transreal Books, like a guy digging a fallout shelter. Transreal Books give me direct, gives me direct, unmediated access to my readers. I can sell e-books myself, and I've learned how to sell printed books online as well. I am so relieved that I have Transreal Books in place. I got it together just in time. I'll publish the touring novel via Transreal Books, and I'll give it a title I really like. Not something to mollify a publisher. I'll call it Turgan Burroughs colon a beatnik SF novel. Mm-hmm. Yes, self-publishing, yes, self-publishing carries a whiff of being a literary leper. But I'd rather publish the book myself than go around begging the truly tiny publishers. Right out of the box, I have a better web presence than many small publishers. And if I self-publish, I earn about as twice as much per copy. Fresh caught fish on my ice flow. <laughs> Drifting towards the great horned sun. And ask me a question or two. Yes. Seeing as how you've got a little lead on me, I retired seven months ago. Uh-huh. What advice would you have for me? Well, when you retire, the initially maybe the first six months make the first year. It is uh, psychologically difficult because a lot of uh, your identity, for many of us anyway, is our job, and so there a big piece of your identity's been cast off. So then it's like, who am I? So that's a little bit a little bit hard. And you don't get to go into work, and even if you don't like it there, at least you would see people and talk to them. And so you don't get quite as much social life. Uh, it's good to have something that you do. Uh, I, well, I kept on writing, so although I'm not teaching, I'm sort of still writing. And I like to hang out in cafes with my laptop. That's a good way to get out and see people. Uh, if you, some sort of group you can get into, it's, I sort of try to make a conscious effort to see somebody at least once a week. Uh, and uh, find, find some activity or a hobby. It's probably not a good idea to be drinking heavily when you're, <laughs> when you're retired. Because then you don't even have the job, you know, to slow you down. <laughs> yeah. I, I I have your journals. Um, you have you've been doing your blog. Is there parts of the blog that are in the journals? There's some. That could be a whole new, whole different book. Yeah, I've I've been blogging since. Uh, Actually, I started right around when I retired, so that was in 2000, I think it was in 2008, I can't remember. Uh, but uh, there is some overlap, sometimes I will, I used to, I would write something in my journals and then I would say, okay, I'll use this for a blog post, and then I'd put in photos. The blog itself, uh, I wondered about publishing it, but... It's, I mean, it's a blog, it's, it's online, and it'll sort of be there indefinitely. So maybe there's no point trying to make a book out of it. It would be, it would be a, a big hassle. And if I did illustrations, that would, that would be a certain amount of trouble, too. It's not as hard to put illustrations into books as, as I thought it was. 
and the, the reproduction quality's gotten a lot better. But, uh, but I do like the blog. To me, the blog, it's a way of self-expression. Uh, I mean, I try for each entry to have a sort of feel to it. And the thing is, I'm a, I take a lot of pictures. That reminds me, I should take your old picture. And then, uh, then I can put the pictures on my blog. See, now, when I post about this, then I can put your old picture there. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Of course, another reason why you do social networks like Twitter and uh, Facebook and blogging, it's building the brand, you know. Keep making awareness of you. Make a lot of friends so you can ask them for money. <laughs> Every so often. You can't just ask them for money or nobody's going to follow you, you know. You have to sort of have a ratio of about 30 or 40 to 1, you know. Maybe you can do some of your photographs, too. The thing is, that's just another way to break my heart. I mean, I've already done, I'm, I'm already painting and writing, which are sort of heartbreaking activities. And then if I went and tried to do anything in terms of an art photographer, I mean, in my opinion, my, I take good photographs. I've been doing it for 55 years, but it's, I'm content uh, just putting them on the blog. Writing, you do the painting, the dark, play musical instrument. I wish I had. I bought a. When I retired, I thought I'm finally going to learn to play the electric guitar. Okay, I mean, you look at the people that play electric guitar. And these guys are not geniuses. A lot of them. <laughs> they're, they're, but they're. Well, there's different kinds of intelligence. You know, they have finger intelligence. They, and they they focus on it. But um, and actually, I had a friend. He, he's a musician, so he's always buying new guitars. So I got one of his cast-off Fender Stratocasters. But I really, I just can't get anywhere on learning how to play it. Um, when I was little, my mother had made me take piano lessons, and I just hated it. I just never got the picture. I mean, I like to listen to music, and I can sing, though. I mean. I think I'm singing, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't think I, I'll ever learn how to play music. You said your journal way back when you were in a band. I was in a band for a short period, yeah. <laughs> it was a punk rock band called the Dead Pigs. And there I, I sang in that band. <laughs> I was adequate to the, the needs of the situation. How, uh, how is it different working on Nestle Scrolls, the autobiography, versus publishing the journals? Because both of them are autobiographical. How, how, were they, how, how was the process? Okay, yeah, a few years ago, I guess that was shortly after, after I had that stroke, I said, well, if I'm going to write an autobiography, I better get it together and do this. We had this dream that it would break out uh, into the mainstream. I mean, sometimes people do that. Well, it, that didn't happen. But, I mean, it sold okay. But um, writing that was, was sort of, well, it was fresh. I was writing it in the present. In other words, and I was doing it sort of like telling stories to people. It's like, you know, you sit down with somebody and you're telling them stories about your life. And then I had each chapter, I didn't want it to be too long, People think they can write their autobiography, but then it's harder than you expect because your life is 
it's like a fractal. I mean, anything you start on, if you're not careful, that reminds you of something else, and that reminds you of something else. And you can just drift off and lose the thread. So uh, it's a little bit tricky. It's like you're skating on thin ice, and you have to skate pretty fast. But the, uh, the journals was more, it was kind of already written. I mean, I had 25 years worth of material. And people would say, why bother publishing it? But, you know, I'm a writer. I've got, I've got 400,000 words sitting here. You think I'm not going to publish that? <laughs> yeah. So it was sort of just a matter of, it was actually more work than I expected whipping it into shape. I, I think I already mentioned, I went through it four times, polishing it and, I threw out maybe, I don't know, 25% of it. There was one thing, I published this via CreateSpace at Amazon, and the largest book size they'll print is 826 pages. So that was a hard upper bound to how long it could be. And then there's the issue of the font. Uh, sometimes small presses, they're sometimes guilty of this, they'll, they'll say, well, let's make, let's make a little bit more on this book, so let's drop the font size down to 10, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, it's not pleasant to read a book like that. So uh, I think here I went down to 11, maybe. But I found a really great font, Janssen. Yeah, Janssen's a really good font. And sometimes they're the best fonts you don't get for free with Adobe Photoshop or InDesign or with the Word. You have to buy them. They're not very expensive, but it's sort of cool, the concept of buying a font. There's even a, an iPhone app where you can just take a picture of it any word in a book. It's called What the Font. <laughs> it's made by people who sell fonts. <laughs> when, you, when you buy a font degree, what rights do you get? Do you get to just use it for that one book? Or? You get to have it on your machine. And you can, you can use it as many times as you want it. And it's not usually expensive, but it's, it's about $100. And you're, you're allowed to publish with that font? I think so. <laughs> I'm not going to delve too deeply into that. <laughs> yeah. No, my sense is that the font works, that they're not staying in business by suing their customers. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I think you can publish it with it. Because why else would you buy the font? You know, just to look at it, you know. But there's, you know, yeah, fonts are interesting. You can really obsess on them. I can't stand a, a sensory font. What do you miss most and least about teaching? Well, I miss, I miss seeing the people, and uh, I enjoyed working with the students. San Jose State, it's, uh, it's an interesting, you know, interesting mix of students. A lot of them are Vietnamese and Chinese, also from India, a lot of people. I always like to you know, write about aliens in my science fiction, so it's not as useful to me to, to hang around with you know, like a Vietnamese woman who, whose English was really, you know, very marginal. And then uh, that was good inspiration for talking to, you know, people from another part of the galaxy. <laughs> so, I mean, so, uh, and then it was, it was gratifying. You know, th then they would like me because I was teaching them something. I'm teaching them computer science. I'm teaching them something they can use to get a job. And they're getting excited about it. And, you know, I would find cool cool programs and let them work on them. So that was all good. But then, you know, the things you don't like, well, I mean, there's an element of repetition. If you're a professor, for a you begin to think, don't you all know this yet? I just explained this last year. You know? Of course, it's, it's different people. You know? 
but and then there's the the deadly committee meetings. You know, that's there's always San Jose State was a fairly nice place to teach because there wasn't a lot of you know vicious academic politics. You tend to have that more in departments where they aren't actually teaching anything. You know, like an English department. <laughs> yeah. They, they get really into the academic politics because there's no way to really judge if anybody's doing anything. You know, it's all. But like if you're doing math or, or physics or computer science, you can sort of tell. You know, if they're <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> but I'm just bitter about English majors because I never get reviewed in the New York Times. You know? <laughs> but uh, they're always reviewing English majors. And now they're even starting to write science fiction books, you know? But they pretend it's not science fiction. You know, it's visionary. It's speculative, you know? Alternate world, you know? Just amazing. So unlike hackneyed tropes of science fiction, you know? Which, which they never, hardly ever mention that, but not that they read any science fiction. You know? Isn't that in movies all the time now? Science fiction movies written, written by people who clearly have never seen science fiction they have all these, they, they feel like, well, what if somebody went faster than light and then they came back to Earth? But, so, they hadn't aged as much, but the people on Earth had. Yeah. What do you think of that? It's like, oh, okay. Uh, well, that's, yeah, I mean, or a movie like Tomorrowland, which, that was a nice movie, but, I mean, why can't they hire a science fiction writer to help them, you know? <laughs> I'm not saying let them do everything, but just somebody who knows what the fuck <laughs> you can do in science fiction, you know, and, and what's been figured out, just to make it logical. I mean, you're spending $100 million. You could pay some poor writer 100 k just to make it be logical, you know. It would only take him about an hour. You know? <laughs> I mean, we're good at making up explanations. You know? It's just a little bit of, just a little bit of respect, you know. <laughs> Like, where was the city in Tomorrowland? You know, they never bothered to tell you, you know? Oh, well. Do you watch a lot of movies, Do I what? Do you watch a lot of movies? A fair number, yeah. Yeah, we, we go out or we stream them. Uh, watch pretty many movies. Because the evening, I don't... Well, I love to read, but it's... I don't know. I've read a lot of books, and now it's always hard to find another one, you know. That's why we have places like this fine establishment. I always see things here that I didn't know about. Have you seen Ex Machina? You know, I really wanted to see that movie, and somehow uh, I haven't managed to see it. I think it's not in the theaters now, so I guess I'll just get it on Netflix. I saw it last weekend. It might still be out. It's really, it's really worth seeing. Yeah, all right, I'd really like to see it. How about Sense8? Has anybody watched that? Do you like that? That's a new series on Netflix. It's by the Matrix Boys, which I mean, they have a good spectacle. They're they're also guys who aren't really big on logic, you know. <laughs> like in the Matrix, they're keeping all these people in these sort of B days, you know, and they're saying, well, why why are you doing this? Why are you keeping a million people alive in this B day in a dark room? Oh, we're using them for batteries. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's that's really cost efficient. <laughs> Putting <laughs> somebody on life support to get a D cells battery juice out. <laughs> yeah, Valerie? Yeah, so I, 
question, but um, one, is Kurt Vonnegut a science fiction writer? And two, were you inspired as a, as a youngster by other science fiction? And what, who would you, if someone hadn't read any science fiction, uh, and of course they would need to read your works, who else would you, who else would you think about? All right, well, that's a multi-parter. Uh, well, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, yeah, I love his writing. He's, when he was, he start. I just read a biography of him the other day couple of weeks ago, it's pretty interesting. Um, he, uh, when he was starting out, he was writing science fiction, uh, but he was, he was able to sell into, he wasn't in the SF magazines, he was selling into like Collier's and Center Evening Post, so he was already kind of out of the gutter from the start. <laughs> and then uh, Sirens of Titan, now he's considered to be a, maybe his best science fiction book. And then, uh, but his best novel is Slaughterhouse Five. That's just an amazing book. I reread that recently. I reread Science of Titan again, and that wasn't as strong as I remembered. But Slaughterhouse Five is that's really a great work of literature. And uh, he uh, he once said something funny about uh, him leaving the science fiction field. He says, "I've long been an occupant of that file drawer labeled science fiction." which is not pleasant because so the critics regularly mistake this drawer for a urinal. <laughs> so it's, there's something about being a science fiction writer. It's, I kind of like it because I always like the beatniks and I like being beyond the pale and improper and like a bad person. So, so I'm glad that I'm a science fiction writer. When I well, one of my very favorite writers was Robert Sheckley, and uh, just this last month, I, I've a, a few years ago, I got hold of uh, his collected stories, and I've just been rereading some of them. And he really is—he's such a clever man, and just so witty and fun and light, but also deep and. He's really a great writer, Robert Shickley. Um Then the other books when I was younger, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I liked Heinlein's books. Uh, Heinlein later got sort of weird. Uh, the, uh, that, that's, it's not even worth going over it. Uh, certainly William Gibson. I mean, if people... He's the one person that... If people haven't read anything besides Heinlein and Asimov, they will have read something by William Gibson. You know, and uh, he's a great writer. He's just his. A lot of his books aren't. Of late, he has been sort of not doing such a science fiction thing. His most recent one is is pretty much straight science fiction, but also very rich, very literary. And he, there is something that some people do. They do this value added, so they they it's sort of. It's not without reason that he's being reviewed uh, outside of the science fiction field. It's just, you know, very beautifully done. So you might check it, check that out. Should we look at the